0: Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, just a
2: word of warning.
3: You're a mess, aren't you? I'm not very tall either.
4: Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it.
0: Good afternoon, Cambridge. Welcome to today's Bums on Seats, your fortnightly film review show on Cambridge 105 Radio. My name is Yossi Osman and I will be your host today. And joining me, we have we have lots of people today. It's very, very exciting. We've got Emma Marchant. Hello. Simon West. Hello. Victoria Eyre. Hello. Alistair Ryder.
2: Hello. Dave O'Reilly. Hello.
0: And for his last show with the Bums on Seats team, oh God, it's Rowan Lamb.
2: Hello. Or should I say good day, mate? Rowan
0: is is. leaving us to go to Australia and we all hate him but we've let him on for this show (laughs) This week we have a whole five films to review for your listening pleasure Starting us off will be Céline Schammer's French historical drama Portrait of a Lady on Fire Before we turn to something slightly more sinister with Elizabeth Moss in The Invisible Man Our third film today, we'll see some elves looking for a little bit of magic in Pixar's latest offering, Onward, and then we'll follow Bushranger Ned Kelly and his gang as they try to escape authorities in true history of the Kelly gang. Last, but maybe not least, who knows, we'll see. We will turn to legal thriller Dark Waters, which tells the true story of lawyer Rob Billot risking everything to uncover some uncomfortable truths. So that's what's to come, but first off, did someone say yearning? That is some of the score from *Portrait of a Lady on Fire*, di- directed by Celine Shahmer. *Portrait of a Lady on Fire* takes us to 18th-century France, where Marianne, played by Noémie Merlon, is commissioned to paint a wedding portrait for Eloise, a young woman who has just left a convent. As Eloise is a reluctant bride-to-be, Marianne pretends to be her companion, taking her for walks by day and secretly painting her new companion at night. However, as intimacy and attraction between the two women grow, the portrait begins to take on something else entirely. Now, I know we've got two big fans of this film in the room, at least, so uh, I'm going to come to Rowan first. Uh You you love this film, don't you?
2: I did. I've been telling anyone who'll listen to me to go and see this film. Um, It really struck me. I don't often sit all the way to the end of a credit sequence in a film just to think about What I've just watched but for that film I did just a beautiful sort of gently told story that evolves at a nice slow pace but not slowly you know something's always happening in this film I was sort of thinking as I was watching it in in a certain way this film rips along but uh, it's also very gentle Oh, Emma's making a face.
0: Oh, okay. Emma <laughs> is making a face. Uh, I had
4: a uh, go on Emma. Why are you making that face? Oh, I, I wasn't. I was gonna. I was gonna wait until everybody else had kind of you know raved about it. I felt like I've seen a different film from everybody else because obviously I went into this and everybody, not just the people in the studio, but critics as well, have really raved about this film. And while I get it is very pretty and very nice to look at. It was one of the dullest two hours of my life. Oh, I didn't Emma. feel, I'm so, I know, I'm really...
5: Homophobic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, 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 no,
2: so
4: no, 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 I loved Call Me By, my, by Your Name, which oh, we had a bit of a well, discussion about, but I wouldn't please. compare the two anyway, necessarily. No. I mean, they're, they're, you know, but that's that's by the by. No, I, I, I just, I, I didn't, I wasn't convinced by their sexual chemistry. I wasn't convinced by their romance. I was, the most exciting bit for me was seeing Valeria Galino pop up from Ray Manon... Hot shots. Hot shots. I was like, oh, where's she been?
2: Uh,
4: <laughs> <laughs> um so I'm really sorry. did so talk, someone, people who loved it, please tell me what I'm missing.
0: Okay, if we if we come to people who loved it. Victoria, I know you loved this film. I did a little brief description of what this film is about, but I don't think that really does the film justice in terms of how Celine Shammer portrays the relationship between these two central women. You can talk about the relationship between like Marianne and Heloise. Like quite like it's
3: be- I think it's great. I think the the relationship that develops, it's like a lot of angst and tension and I don't know where this chemistry you think has gone missing because it's so present on screen it's boiling it's it's not just that there's a character in it called Sophie and she plays the maid of the house Mm -hmm. that uh, Marianne has gone to paint the portrait for and she's a prominent character in that she is like an outsider looking into this like she thinks they're both her like their great friendship this like it's a great tale of like female friendship and what they do for Sophie and what they like help her through and just the the tales that happen on this island yeah. haunting like even when they go to like a midnight mass and the, the soundtrack like completely envelops you at one point and
0: you just see like it's it's a bit witchy I, I really enjoyed it yeah Simon I'm looking at you now yeah. what do you have to say on this
1: I'm with Emma. Um, I mean, yes. overall, I enjoyed the film. It was I wasn't bored throughout it. I found some it a bit quite interesting, but I cannot see whether any chemistry between the two characters. Um, the mention of the bonfire scene when they go into a musical number, I actually found it physically painful to sit through in the cinema. Um, it oh was so God. loud. That's controversial. And this is there? supposed to be, I think, the height of the moment, for the the emotional heart of the film, and it was awful. Um, But, but, you know, apart from that, it is beautiful to look at. There are some really nice scenes. I feel like I have seen it before. Um, There are plenty of similarities to Call Me By Your Name, which is such a better film. But, I, I, mean, well,
3: I, I no, if we stop for a second, why there's so many ro- teenage romance dramas, there's so many, like, normal romance films. Why do we have to compare them? Like, even it. if they are similar, there's similarities in all the Roman yeah. genre. But, I, wouldn't like, compare, why, I wouldn't compare them. This is, after all, a historical drama, you
4: know, well, I suppose, call me where your name was, because it's 1980s, but this yeah. is very much a period piece and does look beautiful.
2: And the things it... I, I think it's superficially similar in that it deals with, you know, sort of illicit relationships or perhaps sexual awakenings or however you'd like to describe it but but I think the, the things it's actually talking about in terms of the the powerlessness of women in particular in that period the way that relates to modern society the sort of voyeurism and the questions about consent that it's talking about in there when you know when she's painting the portrait in secret and the thing that this portrait is for just all the little subtleties about what is happening to these women and these women are being forced to do and the things that they then take for themselves and empower themselves to do i think is just it's beautiful film and the messages it tells are really interesting
5: Would you agree
0: with that Alistair?
5: I would so i Firstly, I will say that I think that this Portrait of a Lady on Fire, I think it's lit. Um, <laughs> well done. Uh, secondly, Here I will also, we
0: go. i will just
5: also add the disclaimer that it's been nearly a year since I watched it because I saw it at a place last year that I am not going to mention in case I sound like I'm hum- humble bragging.
2: Um, <laughs> but it's in France, right? But it's,
5: it's a place in the south of France <laughs> that's a film festival. Anyway, so, yeah, it's been nearly a year since I've watched it and I do just want to just sort of counter the criticisms that it is similar to Call Me By Your Name because again as Vicky was saying in the abstract like if you like label any sort of romance or LGBT romance on a sort of like basic level they will all sound similar and it's only really the final moments that sort of echo um, the final moments of that film outside of that it's a completely different beast and I think that if you've seen any of a Celine Sciamma's previous films, like *Tomboy* or *Girlhood*, I think that this is a a great evolution for her as a filmmaker because her previous films uh, were sort of all about uh, sort of teenage and prepubescent girls just sort of like discovering their own identities and you know sort of really you know finding themselves in that sort of crucial moment in adolescence. And this is her now sort of following sort of mature characters. And themselves, and I think it is a great evolution for her as a filmmaker
0: I did want to talk a little bit about Celine Shammer and how she sort of built this this world in this film and, and it's quite an intoxicating, well it was for me, I don't know about um, <laughs> Emma and Simon but for me it was a very intoxicating film, I completely fell in love with it um, I actually watched it twice and I do think it's one of those films that kind of needs a rewatch because there is so much that you discover the, the second time that you watch it i'm wondering if anyone has any thoughts on how celine shama has has created this well it is work of art to me personally
3: well oh, i like your Yossi. i like watched it twice because it played at cambridge film festival this year and i managed to see it twice and the second the first time it was quite late and i was some parts missed but the second time it if it like it could just be the subtleties i think she works quite i mean people can call that boring yeah. <laughs> people did think, call it boring <laughs> i think like just the the mannerisms that these two women have to keep their romance secret is like makes like it made my skin like Goosebumps! Oh
2: yeah, the the full tink, the full body tingle yeah. happened. Like I got that rush of exhilaration three times in this film. Uh, three times. Three I times. Wish I. One, I was, the, wish uh, I the, <laughs> one was the uh, one was the 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 witchy nighttime scene that Simon didn't enjoy. That was ridiculous. But I, I really did. I
4: found that ridiculous. That bonfire oh. scene. I, I, I thought I thought it was beautiful. Yeah, it was magical. It was, it was a very enclosed, <laughs> like you say, they create a very enclosed world. Obviously, yeah. because you're only really within sort of three rooms in the in in the house, and then you see the beach and then you have the whole subplot with Sophie, the, the May as well. There's a very little... And I think there's only one male character in it, and he is barely in it. He's just the guy who comes to pick He's her up, but yeah. the end. Mm. But, so I, I appreciate that kind of... There was, a, there was a sense of kind of claustrophobia, almost dreamlike, because they are within their own world, and this is where this romance can, can blossom. Mm. But I don't know. I've got no desire... I mean, I know you're telling me I should do, but has I've got anyone, no to watch it again.
2: Has anyone looked up what they're actually singing in that scene?
5: Nobody no, but have you? Please Bro, tell in. us, yes, Rowan. Tell have. Us. Can you the, perform it as well? Oh, <laughs> I wish
2: I could. I think we might hear it at the end of the show. Actually, the refrain they're constantly repeating is, "They cannot escape. They cannot escape. They cannot escape." And when you think about the themes of the film, and you know, what these women know, I think that you know, really uh, elevates that scene again.
0: Yeah, I, and. And then there's something about... I've You know, I've read a few kind of articles around the film where they talk a lot about the female gaze and that this is, like Celine shammer's other films, this is very much... Um, oh. I wanted to ask about that, because I was going to say, is the female gaze basically just training
4: your camera for a really long time <laughs> on these two women's faces? Because <laughs> As they, they like, look <laughs>
0: longingly <laughs> at each other.
4: And I must admit that the actress who played Heloise does have the most fascinating... Fa- I mean, she has the most... She does have a very interesting face to look at, but mm. I was a bit like, is this what they mean when they say female gaze? Am I being ridiculous?
2: Well, uh, Sorry. Celine Sharma, and she used to go out.
0: Ah, oh, that makes sense.
4: And oh, okay.
2: Yeah, for a long time. And so Do you I think, think that
0: influenced the filmmaking then? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. But, yeah. but I could see, but in that like I could see. Like a love actual letter to an ex girlfriend. Yeah, now exactly, that feels yeah. kind
4: of
0: beautiful.
2: Yeah, oh, exactly. now,
0: now you've, you've turned me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Emma, are you going to watch it again now? Watch
4: it again with that in mind, and I'm no doubt going to love it. Okay,
0: yeah. well we we have to end it there because we have got four other films to talk about today. Um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire you can now catch online via Curzon, and it is a certificate 15. Next up, it's time for something a little darker.
1: My dreams dead. Listen, you're getting your freedom back, okay?
4: He said that wherever I went, he would find me, walk right up to me, and I wouldn't be able to see him. Adrian is dead. He's not dead. He has figured out a way to be invisible.
1: Surprise. Let me help you.
4: You can't help me.
0: The Invisible Man, which you just heard the trailer for, is directed and written by Lee Wannell. It's a suspense thriller starring Elizabeth Moss, who plays Cecilia, a woman who escapes an abusive and controlling relationship with brilliant scientist Adrian, played by Oliver Jackson-Cohen. But when Adrian commits suicide and leaves Cecilia a generous portion of his vast fortune, Cecilia believes that not all is as it seems. So, who shall I come to? Let's come to Simon on this one. Invisible Man, uh, we're we're venturing into the world of horror now. How does this hold
1: up? Um, Surprisingly fantastic. Um, After the misstep with the Universal um, monster movie expanded universe due to um, the mummy which I did actually like but I know most people didn't um, they decided to hand it over to Lee Wannell and Bloomhouse who's more known for um, I think he wrote saw and also doing a lot of other um, really quite low budget horror films he was really I think insidious and the film films like that which are really tight and he's completely rewritten the character the story it's not the invisible man of the other films it's not the one you know it's told completely from um almost like the victim's point of view here um who is you know who's been in an abusive relationship with the scientist and that's how, how she's recovering um and all the attempts to gaslight her and see whether she's actually driving her mad and the film stays with her so you really do get the same feel of the, the the fear you don't know what's going on um the camera work in this is beautiful um it's so effective to see little moves to see nothing but you know it's an invisible man but is something there is there nothing there you start playing tricks with your own mind about what you're actually seeing on the screen um uh-huh. And towards the end, it is getting a bit more action orientated. I thought the design of the actual Invisible Man itself was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was left with, you know, a really surprised, fantastic film, which would grip me throughout. Uh, yeah, it's definitely worth seeing.
0: How does it work? I'm just thinking of, of some of the themes of the film and, um, you know, in the news, thinking of, of sorts of things we see in the news around Me Too, for example. Um, how how does this film relate and actually how much do we rely on elizabeth moss's performance in this film that's kind of two questions so <laughs> who wants to go first
1: i mean elizabeth moss does carry this film um she is fantastic we've seen her for everything from madman restring to handmaid's tale um it is very much a questions it tackles questions about believing uh, the victims when they when mm-hmm. they come forward um and you know people trying to throw doubt on their stories and how it should be dealt with. Um, it does take it a little bit head-on uh, in a few times. But overall, it really does give you an understanding and a feeling about what it's like not to be believed.
3: Mm-hmm. Victoria, I was just going to come to you. I felt, um, like, yeah, about well, not being believed. I felt anxious throughout all of those heavy scenes where she's just trying to explain, even to her friends, like, what she knows, what she's saying, is completely absurd. But and you just feel so, like... Well, I felt like just so claustrophobic almost, and like in the way that she's like, he's isolating me. I'm losing all, you. Can, I'm losing you, like as she's speaking to him. Like, and he, he, you can see on her friend's face, he doesn't believe her. And you don't know, like, if you were in that situation, what would you do? Mm-hmm. Like, it's insane. What she's performing, her whole performance, and then the way that her performance develops i don't want to spoiler it but towards the end the way that she grows as the character is like it's such a satisfying end to a film
5: yeah and i think that it's also good at sort of creating that anxiety and that claustrophobia right from the start i mean the first 10 minutes which unfold in like with little to no dialogue could be a self-contained film within itself
2: is wonderful with
5: absolutely zero exposition it paints this like sort of horrifying picture of a woman who has no choice but to escape this abusive relationship without ever needing to sort of clarify this. You just get everything purely through images. And that just perfectly sets up for what I thought was uh, probably the best film that we're reviewing this week. And certainly, uh, I mean, it's it's, it's an embarrassment of riches this week, but this is the one that has really sort of stood out and really played on my mind because it really made me feel this awful anxiety for two hours uh, in a way that only the best horror films can and in terms of taking this sort of like classic b-movie from like the 30s a classic monster movie era and then just sort of flipping it on its head and finding something contemporary to say about it the only other remake i can think of that did that was a david cronenberg's version of the fly Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, which again he just sort of jettisoned the entire premise of A Man Turned Into a Fly just to focus on the metamorphosis to sort of comment on sort of somebody being infected with a disease that's incurable. And again, I think that Lee Whannell has just done a fantastic job of finding something unexpected and something just genuinely horrifying to say within source material that you just think was silly, campy fun. Yeah. Um, a- it is just a genuinely oppressive experience and I mean that in the best way. So yeah, I was an invisible fan. <laughs> hey!
2: That's two for two. Uh, yeah. oh, are you going to
0: do one for each of the films we talk about today? <laughs> not
5: not going not to spoil.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, Looking forward to the next one then. Um, Rowan, I'm coming to you. I've, I've had an interesting conversation with someone after I saw the film about the sort of narrative pacing and how Lee Whannell sort of plays with that throughout the film in terms of you have these long sequences matched with empty spaces that you see um, I can't remember the cinematographer's name but I want to give them a shout out oh well I'll look it up later Um, but yeah let's just talk a little bit about that and how that works with this kind of horror genre
2: yeah it's funny you should mention the horror genre in talking about empty spaces one of the things that I thought of when I was watching this film is the End credits of the first Halloween film mm-hmm. where after, you know, the heroes have, have beaten the uh, the villain over the credits or during the credits. Um, oh, God, I forgot the director of that film's name. Uh, We're all
0: forgetting names
2: anyway. here. John Carpenter. Carpenter. I want to say Carter and I knew it was wrong. John Carpenter <laughs> just points the camera at empty domestic scenes. Nothing, you know, no movement of the camera, you know, just pointing at empty scenes where you and you're, you're thinking oh he could be there he could be there he could be there and the way that the the pacing of this film and the way that space was left implying the presence of an invisible man mm. was i thought a really clever cinematographic <laughs> technique <laughs> i don't even know if that's a word but we'll
0: go with that yeah like, <laughs>
2: and and i <laughs> In terms of pacing, someone mentioned it when it sort of goes a bit more gung ho at the end. I thought that was actually my least favourite. I was going to say, does film. that
0: that bit where it does go gung ho, as you say, does does that take away some of the brilliance of the film that we've we've just discussed? Or
2: uh, for me, it did. But I can see why they would want to have done it. It's it's a it's a pretty brave director who would who would not have a satisfying conclusion to a film like that and just have it sort of peter out in a quiet and spacey way but it's know. a good
1: compromise because it is okay. supposed to be a Warner's a Universal yes bit, a big film I mean I could I compare it briefly to I saw The Boy 2 uh, Brahms the previous week mm-hmm. which was one of the worst films I've seen for quite a while what's <laughs> it
0: called sorry uh,
1: Brahms The okay. Boy 2 the boy was quite good it was surprisingly good but the sequel was just worse because they kind of use jump scares and It is obvious when a director has no idea how to do horror and they're attempting to do that. Whereas Lee wan Al in this film, no jump scares, everything's, you know, any jump scares that do come in are completely Mm untelegraphed and do actually surprise and shock you. And it just goes to show just how good he is at horror
2: and what a talent he's going to be. He, because of the the nature of the villain he can do jump scares without using a cut which yeah. is really nice like you know, the it could just suddenly something can happen on screen as a jump scare it's yeah. it's i mean there were certain moments which were um yeah, oh, this was a surprising film for me at how good it yeah. was.
0: Yeah. yeah, I think everyone looking around the studio seems to be a fan of this. I've just found the name, well, our producer, Ashley, has found the name. Stefan Doucho is the cinematographer there, so uh, there you go. I think that's all we've got. He's Australian. He's Australian. Oh, how many <laughs> Australian references can we get into this show, Rowan? Well,
5: as I said, The Invisible Man, Australian director, Australian cinematographer, and aside from that such stock footage of San Francisco, filmed entirely in Australia.
2: There you go. So wow.
0: Number one. Yeah. great stuff. Uh, the Invisible Man is currently showing at the Light and View Cinemas in Cambridge. It is a Certificate 15. Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. You are listening to Bums on Seats on Cambridge One Hundred and Five Radio. Coming up, we have uh, reviews of Mark Ruffalo-led legal thriller Dark Waters and Justin Kurzel's drama True History of the Kelly Gang. But we're now going to turn our attention to something a little heartwarming with the latest from Pixar.
5: We've only got twenty-four hours to bring back the rest of Dad. We're going on a quest. All quests start with the Manticore, the fearless adventurer.
4: You mean Corey? She's over there. Quick, somebody help me. These Griffin nuggets were supposed to go out minutes ago.
6: That's the Manticore. You guys
1: are in trouble big time. Get in the vehicle, I'm escorting you home. I'm giving you to the count of three. Okay. Wait, what are you doing?
3: I don't
4: know. Ah! I'm looking for my sons. Oh, they went on a quest. But don't worry. I told them about the map. I told them about the gym. I told them about the curse. I forgot to tell them about the curse. what? Uh! Your boys are in grave danger.
0: That was the trailer for Onward, directed by Dan Scanyon, which sees... Chris Pratt and Tom Holland as elf brothers Ian and Barley Lightfoot, who live in a world where magic, once commonplace, has now become virtually extinct. The brothers go on a journey to discover if there is still a little magic left to spend one last day with their father, who died when they were too young to remember him. Now, uh, Dave, you've come into the studio. Um, I've... This film, I surprisingly didn't see much marketing or anything for it, which surprised me because it's Pixar. You know, we all love, we all know and love Pixar. I'm sure we could spend 10, 15 minutes talking about what our top three Pixar films are. Why do you think that it's not been getting as much attention? Is it the film itself or is it?
6: it could oh, the just be is. precisely you just said we all love pixar so maybe they've stepped back a bit in terms of what they're doing about it and they said well everyone loves us so you know we can advertise it lightly i have to say i don't think i've seen the trailer we played that's got parts of the story in that i was not expecting coming so maybe that actually improved the film for me because of the lighter advertising you are getting to a point now where you see so many film trailers where basically the entire movie is in the trailer I'm talking yes. about Michael Bay and Transformers because that's a good way of not having to watch the entire movie in his case. But staying on it, uh, I really like this film. Uh, you know, for me it was, it was a bit kind of light and fluffy, I guess is the way to describe it, in terms of the plot was very simple... Uh, it fit into Pixar's latest trend of race-against-time films. I've stolen that off Alistair, he's going to get me back for that.
5: Yeah, well, I'm going to flip the script on that, so you, you carry
6: on. Yeah. Okay, uh, and, um, here we go. And so once I knew what the basic plot was going to be, it, for me it then all became about the character interaction, and I really like the way they were just highlighting the, the sibling relationship is the focus of the film. The director has said it reminds him of something that happened in his childhood where his older brother found a tape of his father, who he'd never heard and played it for him. And that inspired the story. So maybe knowing that background as well got to me a little bit more. So I kind of focused on the relationship between the two of them. And I really enjoyed the interplay between uh, Chris Pratt and Tom Holland as the two brothers. You can see that they're not just acting. They also must have a bit of a relationship outside the film as well. And it's coming across because they're genuinely warm to each other. And in the scenes where they do disagree, there's still that thing of you know they're gonna fight because they're they're brothers this is what siblings do we all fight with our siblings there's no Mm -hmm. way around it but at the same time we all love our siblings and that always comes back across and when you get to the end of the film and there's just like the things they do for each other and they increase throughout the film and then the one at the end yeah i i'm not ashamed i did sob just a little bit a don't bit. be
0: ashamed at all. That's what Pixar does. Uh, I'm going to turn to Alistair now because he said he was going to flip the script. Um, uh, did this brotherly tale have any sort of magic effect on
5: you? Well, I'm usually an easy mark when it comes to Pixar. I'm usually in floods of tears by the end. And uh, yeah, I have to say this one was a case of onward and downwards because I just didn't have that emotional connection to the story. Um, Why? Why not? Well, I think it's because the Pixar formula is now so set in stone. I knew each beat of the story as it was com- you know, coming along. It was a race against time narrative, which I think they've just done to death so much in their recent films. I mean, Inside Out, Coco, Toy Story 4 are all built around these race against time narratives and it's just so simplified and as is the case with each of those films. It's the thing that seems like the emotional destination... I'll say this vaguely. The thing that seems like the emotional destination of the film is obviously not the emotional destination. There's actually a more profound, a different relationship that we should be focusing on throughout. And in uh, Onward, I just knew from a, from the start that it wasn't really going to be about these kids' relationship with their father who passed away. Secondly... Um, (laughs) And I just want to say, and this is just sort of tangential. Um, So the the boys sort of bring back their father through a magic spell, but the spell goes wrong. So they've only got the bottom half of his body. And to sort of get to where they need to go, they don't want it to look suspicious. So they get like a, a, like a dummy, uh, a suit and put it on these legs. And basically all of the jokes are just taken from not Weekend at Bernie's, but Weekend at Bernie's 2, in which Bernie is resurrected by a voodoo curse. (laughs) <laughs> and it is the strangest reference point and not even a good film but half the jerks in this film are taken from a bad forgotten sequel from the early 90s it just feels like despite having this clear emotional resonance you know, in terms of why the director decided to make this film none of that really connects on screen it just feels like he had this emotional idea and then just constructed this half-baked fantasy narrative around it that just feels too familiar because of how similar you know, the emotional destination of the narrative is to so many recent Pixar films. So yeah, onward and downwards.
0: Okay, I can see Dave itching to have a counter-argument there, but I'm going to come to Simon who's had this sort of resigned look on his face for the last <laughs> few minutes. Um, you might be implying to me there, Alistair, that perhaps this is kind of lazy from Pixar. They feel that they can sort of get away with the usual Pixar formula. Do you think that's the case, Simon?
1: Oh uh, yeah. Um it doesn't feel I was surprised it doesn't look like a Pixar film. I didn't think it felt like a Pixar film. I'm not always a big fan of the Pixar films. Um I think probably because it is just so formulaic. Um I quite enjoyed the start of this film. Not even up with a setup that was okay.
0: Oh, Most gosh. of them were okay. <laughs> oh, gosh. Sorry, but, carry on.
1: Then you got the Dreamworks films like How to Train a Dragon, which actually have a bit of action and, you know, real heart to it, where this all just seems to be so mechanical pulling at strings. Um, I quite enjoyed his setup. Chris Pratt is incredibly miscast. They wanted Jack Black. They could not get Jack Black. They should have just waited until they could. But um, I, thought, I agree
0: with Dave that I thought the chemistry between Pratt and just Holland just, was, quite, was quite good.
1: Yeah, that's just because of, of the Marvel films. I mean, it's just, right, it's just carrying okay. over. It's Spider Man and Star Lord. It's, it's just carrying over. But it's Chris Pratt is actually playing Jack Black throughout the entire film. Um, you know, I wanted to enjoy it a bit more. It looked like the kind of thing that, you know, would quite appeal to me. I do like fantasy films, I do like, you know, the kind of things like that. But after the, about the first half hour, I just got bored. Um, and I just found the film really quite boring. Um, I'm not surprised there they're not marketing it much, because I think they are, they are expecting it just to, like, be forgotten about. I mean, it's almost like it should have been a Disney film.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know what I'm going to take from that. Um, but there, there's something likeable about it. It's a family film, and even if it does sort of fall into the Pixar formula, there, there's something there, I think, for people, families who want to go and, and just be in that sort of Pixar world. Right, Dave. You can you can come back and argue with these two now.
6: Yeah, I, I, I'm terrible at arguing. I can just keep talking about things that are awesome in it. Go and on then. Everyone Please will forget do the other stuff. Go on no, then. Um, I mean, because the, the the thing for me, they they very quickly establish in the film that you know it is set in a fantasy world, but it's a fantasy world where fantasy has been taken away. So I actually had the opposite experience to Simon and Alistair in that I was actually quite bored at the start of the film because there wasn't enough magic, because the flying unicorns were eating the trash out of the garbage cans instead of being these majestic flying winged unicorn beasties of awesome, which is what Chris Pratt's character wants people to remember. They they portray him as like a Dungeons and Dragons, you know, playing kind of a nerd and stuff, but he's actually also embracing the history, the actual culture, which everyone else seems to be trying to get rid of and remove. And it's just in a couple of throwaway scenes, but it's stuff like that where it's like, well, this is actually important for his character. His character wants to try and remember the past and stuff. And that's why when you realise, although, as Alistair said, the ultimately the film is about the brothers' bond, but the bond between Barley and his father is also one that is maybe you can see the influences why he's trying to preserve history it's because he remembers he has this history with his father um tom holland's character ian doesn't actually Mm. remember that much at all and that for me was like this is him acting it out on another level he's trying to save this stuff because he couldn't you know his father got ill he couldn't do anything to save him and there's a scene where he talks about the memories he has and that was another point where i nearly just kind of flooded the cinema as well it was it was those little moments think, for me. I think
1: you got those moments at the beginning where they do take that world, they do turn it on ahead with the fantasy world modernised, and there's a lot of inventive humour in that. And, you know, like the unicorns in the trash, um, when they're discovering the manticore's uh, lair and things like that, which is really quite enjoyable. But they only kept it up for half an hour. And that was a problem, and at that point, all the inventiveness disappeared,
6: but and it just became another one of them. Was when the magic came back in as well, And, yeah, and, and they actually started exploring their own characters and mm. the effects of magic on them. I and that, yeah.
5: an alternative take. And I think the reason that I didn't buy into the emotion of the story is because it doesn't in this opening half hour really explore the idea of this magical kingdom where they have electricity and all of the things that we have in the modern world. It's this half-baked idea. It's reminded me the most, the Pixar film reminded me the most of was The Good Dinosaur, which has this premise of, what if the asteroid didn't like wipe out the dinosaurs? And the answer is dinosaurs would be around. They don't really think about the premise much more than that. And here it was just like they had this idea and don't really do anything with it. And it doesn't really make this world tangible. And it just made me question, why did they bother with this fantasy narrative? Couldn't they have done, like, one of their more down-to-earth films? Couldn't they have done something like, I don't know, Up or something, just about some human... But why, why
0: should they do something that? like that? Why, why should they go back to that?
5: Well, it's just because if you're going to do a fantasy narrative, like, have some curiosity as to what this world is like. It feels like it's created by people who... Hmm. Do not care about the world, they're just like they need a gimmick.
1: No, I think, like I, said, I think, like I said, I think it gimmick. lasted for about half an hour where they were, and then they ran out of ideas and they had another hour to fill.
0: Well, I've, Dave, final comments because we, we do have to move on.
6: I mean, I think they've, they've made it for kids more than anyone in this case, might actually be the case. And the reason, you know, we're maybe seeing it as like the world is normalised and nothing is so that they're teaching the kids to go and look for the special stuff, mm. which is maybe something that we're all forgetting to do these days. Well, my, and, hot,
5: my final hot take, sorry. Oh, oh. Uh, no. Go on then, Alistair. Sonic the Hedgehog was better.
6: Oh, oh you're just wrong there. Okay, well,
0: <laughs> I, I have to disagree with, with you that. there. No, yeah. I, think, I think I'm on team Dave <laughs> with that um, opinion. Right, uh, Onward is showing at the View and Light Cinemas in Cambridge. It is a certificate, you, so suitable for everyone. Uh, next up, it's time to talk Bush Rangers.
2: We're rebels,
5: bandits, warriors.
3: I had never met a man like you
6: who didn't want to take something from my family. Run. Run as fast as you can.
4: Fire! The Kelly Gang. Yeah. Are we gonna take the future, make it ours? Yeah. We're
3: the sun's sea! There is not a man born who could have the
6: patience to suffer the injustice I have. So as you read this history. Know that it will contain no single lie. May I burn in hell if I speak false.
0: Justin Kurzell's drama True History of the Kelly Gang is set against the badlands of colonial Australia where the English rule and the Irish endure. Ned Kelly, played by George Mackay, discovers he comes from a line of Irish rebels called the Sons of Civ, an uncompromising army of cross-dressing bandits immortalised for terrorising their oppressors back in Ireland. Nurtured by the notorious bush ranger Harry Power, played by Russell Crowe, and fuelled by the unfair arrest of his mother, Ned Kelly recruits a wild bunch of warriors to plot one of the most audacious attacks of anarchy and rebellion the country has ever seen I think I'm going to come to Rowan on this one it might be the Australian link yet again I don't know but um, the Kelly legend I'm sort of aware of it but didn't know too much Mm. before seeing this film I wonder if you knew a lot about it and how this film goes with that
2: I'd say not a lot actually I'm I'm familiar with the broad strokes he's a sort of a, a Folk hero, perhaps a sort of a anti hero. Yeah. A little bit Robin Hood type. I don't think he's as beloved as Robin Hood is here you know i think i think he is sort of understood to be not quite right you know
4: can i just say something really early on this Please. is very much based on the peter carey novel yeah. That yeah. Listed, which is a, a, a which a i read, fictionalized version yeah. of the ned kelly so this is not like let's say the film that was with heath ledger and orlando blue yeah. ned kelly yeah. which is much more based on re- this is a specific adaption of that book which is fictionalized in itself yeah, there yeah. You go. i'll step back one of no my words. favorite
2: parts of this one of my favourite parts of this film is the opening caption which says none of the what you're about to see is true and the word true then f- sort of flows into the uh, the title of the film. I thought that was very clever.
5: That's when I started rolling my eyes and did not stop. Oh, really? Uh, oh, I liked it. I yeah. like, but I, I, yeah, tell us why for you
2: liked it, Rowan. I like a bit of pretension. I like a bit of... Uh, <laughs> I like a bit of sort of self-awareness and a little bit of um, silliness, you know. But I... I I think I went into this film expecting something else.
0: What were you expecting?
2: Well, a true history of the Kelly gang, for one. Right, Okay.
0: Well, (laughs) Um, that was spoilt.
2: I mean, one of my absolute favourite films is The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Yes. And I think perhaps I was expecting something a little closer to that in tone, which this absolutely is not. Um, But I think by having my expectations completely... Confounded. I enjoyed this film a little more, perhaps. You know, I was surprised, which is always a, a pleasant emotion to get in a cinema, is to be surprised by something that you're watching.
0: Yeah. Um, Emma, I'm coming to you because, once again, you are making, making a, face a face at me. <laughs> so I feel like I must... I kind of, I'm, I'm think you've got some I'm kind really, of counter-argument I saw here. I've only like two films
4: this week, okay. and, I didn't like, and I'm the dissenting voice on both of That's them. That's fine, we need dissenting um, voices. I think this is much more of a Justin Kurtzell film. It feels... I mean, because he made Snowtown, which... I would never watch. I, I know a lot about the, the creepy real-life Snowtown Murders, but I would never watch that. And then he's made a version of Macbeth with Marion Cotillard and um, Fassbender. So it comes on the back of that, and I did think visually this was really interesting. I like mm-hmm. the punky ethos of it. I like the kind of timeless style. But honestly, it just wore me down. All the shouting and the fighting and the shouting and the shouting. I was going to say, shouting.
0: because it, I don't know if I'm using the right word, but it was like a very...
4: Physical film. That was yeah. George Mackay is incredible. I mean, the first time you see him, because they, they, Orlando Schwert, Schwert, Schwer, who plays the young Ned Kelly, I, mm. I thought they were really well cast because I did think they looked mm. like they, they really looked like each other. And so the first 15 minutes is a young Ned Kelly, and then he gets put into the hands of Harry Powell, you know, and, and then he grows into George Mackay. And the first shot of George Mackay is really quite gripping in front of that massive Union Jack. It looks like a kind of quadruphaena thing. When he's thing, sort and
2: of bending backwards. backwards. Oh. And
4: it's the most physical performance from him. I mean, Compared to 1917, it's you know I think it's a really impressive performance from George MacKay. I liked him in 1917, but this is very different. It's what I'm saying, but as it just it was just too, too much, much for me, too much at one level.
1: Yeah, I would say the, one of the warnings about this film it is very grim. Mm-hmm. Um, it is grim throughout. As we're using the word visceral, uh, um, and. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. Um, it wasn't what I expected. It is kind of like said punky and it's not straightforward. There's no straightforward story here. It's a whole series like small vignettes which over the time and over the film give you more of an impression and the feel of the time there. The living out in the outback in Australia, the persecution um, that they, they face from the, you know, from the British. Mm-hmm. Um, the cast were fantastic. Everyone from Nicholas Hull, yeah. uh, Charlie Hunnam, Russell Crowe. A lot of these characters are only in it briefly and mm-hmm. then are gone again, um, but they're all fantastic. I mean, this is the one film I've seen over the weekend of the show where I was thinking about it the next day when I woke up. The day after that, it just stuck with me. And the you know the images and the ideas throughout the film are absolutely. It it really gets into your skin.
0: Okay, so l- lasting impressions on Simon and Robin, Emma not so convinced. Alistair, where are you on this?
5: So I'm somewhere between uh, the, both <laughs> the effusive praise and Emma hating it. Um, I'm very much on the fence um, about this one, and you'll be pleased to know I do not have a pun. Aww. I've only got. I've, I've been racking my brains, what? but I cannot. Be, well, the closest I could get was I'm not a Kelly fan, and that's bad. And I've <laughs> already used. Like, but you the still fan said pun it
0: anyway. For the invisible
5: yeah. Man. Um, But no, my feelings are this. Um, It was good that Ryan mentioned uh, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, because I felt like that is actually what the film was trying to aspire to, this idea of taking this folk hero and then sort of subverting what we know about them. Um, But I just didn't think it was very good at that. And it was sort of caught between that and a sort of like Guy Ritchie style, like boisterous Hmm. lads, lads, lads movie. And that... That approach sort of comes at odds with the more interesting ideas at it, which are sort of this underlying homoeroticism—the idea that the Kelly Gang would dress up in women's clothing, which is you know an invented idea. But I the,
4: don't know. There, there is there is some kind of historical reference to part of the Kelly Gang dressing, but they've really gone heavy on this. Obviously, yeah. there is yeah. there is slight historical reference to no, it, but I, they I, I, I ran
5: can with Google that. Google it. And I couldn't find very slim like references to them dressing up in women's clothing, Um, but. Yeah, it's it wants to be this, like really homoerotic thing, but at the same time, it's just very conscious that this is going to be a lads, lads, lads movies for straight men. And so I just like sort of flippantly joked uh, that you know it's 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 one of these films that that the problem with it is just that these interesting ideas are just sort of compromised by the fact that it. Wants its target audience to be just sort of straight down the middle, straight men who want a sort of violent, uh, violent thriller.
4: Did anyone think it was kind of shot? It had a horror sensibility about it, like a horror film sensibility. Because I kind of did, and then the gory bits added mm. to that as well. Oh, there i was it's gonna it. ask right. about the gory it's, bits. It's
1: you know again, again, it is quite grim and unlike other films I can really understand why a lot of people won't like this film Mm. so I can't complain about you not liking it because it's (laughs) oh thanks Simon (laughs) it's not going to be for everybody Um, I don't agree with all of Alice's comments I think the um, the difference like I said, between the sexuality is quite fluid it's very very punk especially like dressing up the moon clothes it's more of a punk ethos rather than anything else and being a non-conformist and I think Um, that
4: the the grand shootout at the end with the famous homemade armour I did I will say I thought that was brilliantly done that was a brilliant set piece but yeah. you have to sit through a lot to
2: get there okay. <laughs>
0: Fi- final sentence from Rowan because we've oh, got to move on I'm afraid
2: okay. I just wanted to call out the cinematography in the film that final shootout really imaginative modern yeah. cinematography that absolutely is anachronistic doesn't fit with the time period that they're showing but the the, the cinematography is beautiful which um, Justin Kersel I think is pretty well known for yeah. he's used a couple of different cinematographers over his career but um, Ari Wegner is uh, doing a, a great job this time
0: great ending on a positive note there thank you everyone True History of the Kelly Gang is currently showing at the Arts Picture House and it is a Certificate 18 and it's time for our last film of the day which is Dark Waters
3: how many
1: did you lose 190 190 cows you tell me nothing's wrong here it's a small matter for a family friend help a guy who needs it the farmer or you? That's chemicals, I'm telling you. I'm seeing documents. I don't understand. They're hiding something.
3: You need to tell me what in the hell's going on.
5: Dupont is knowingly poisoning seventy thousand local residents for the last forty years.
1: You knew, still, you did nothing. You want to flush your career down the toilet for some cowhand?
6: You want to take everything that you know? and turn it against an iconic American company, like an informant. Isn't that right? Isn't that right? Isn't that right? Yes.
0: Inspired by true events, Todd Haynes' Dark Waters sees Mark Ruffalo star as Rob Billott, an attorney who uncovers a dark secret that connects a growing number of unexplained deaths due to one of the world's largest corporations. Driven by an overwhelming sense of justice, he will stop at nothing to uncover the truth. Hello, Victoria. Welcome back. I Hi. know that you are a big fan of, of Dark Waters. Um, I am, yeah. Please tell us why
3: oh sorry (laughs) it's okay don't worry (laughs) i thought i went in with absolutely no expectations of this film i thought it might it was basically i thought of it as the male Aaron brockovich that nobody needed um however i think mark ruffalo quickly turned me around within like five minutes you see him like give this man attention that he needs he goes you can see him and you can see that He's a uh, troubled, not troubled, or he's very much a chemical company lawyer. He's boring, he gets his work done, he gets his paycheck for his family, which includes his wife Anne Hathaway, which is maybe the only downfall of this film for me, because everything else, Mark Ruffalo, the colour grading, the cinematography, the, like is so good. And I came out so happy that I saw this film, apart from the overacting that is Anne Hathaway's performance it just completely um spoiled ru- it for you spoiled it ruined the whole the whole mood of it it was like some points you just wanted to be like let the um, he, he makes these revelations of the chemical companies, DuPont, and it's this moment where he's he's generally scared for his children because, like, Teflon is everywhere, and it's like he realises that he's, the, the poisoning that's happening, and then she comes in, all guns blazing, and it's, it's completely blown out proportion within the first two seconds with this incredibly uptight haircut, and it was oh, <laughs> I'm so sorry. We can't, so we can't sorry. be talking
0: about the haircut. It was a great
3: film, <laughs> but I, I am so sorry that Anna. Ma- but Mark Ruffalo, I'm assuming, Mark did Ruffalo enough for you to counteract. Did so the... much. He was great, and he plays this like this defeated lawyer character so well. Um, he's even got the hunched shoulders, the way he walks. He can like even the point where he generally he has a. I, they said it's not a stroke. It's definitely a stroke in the film, and he like the way he does his completely collapses in this color drain it was insane i thought i was actually quite concerned but i knew it was all fake but it's it's really it's a testing case and the amount of time it feels like two hours when you watch it and you can tell that because they're going through like decades in the film quite fast and but you're there for all of it it's not a long
0: drag it's also like it's a long court case so um I have to say I'm kind of ashamed I didn't actually know really much about anything about this story at all when I went to see the film and it did quite surprise me because I was expecting sort of your standard boring legal thriller but for me there was something a little bit extra here um, Alistair I don't know if you what you thought about it
5: Yeah I mean I didn't know the true story I was in the dark when I dipped into these waters um,
0: Oh
3: and,
5: uh, <laughs> but yeah no, just to uh, sort of piggyback on what Vicky's saying, it does like span all these decades and I think that that actually might be why the Anne Hathaway stuff is such a distraction because that's part of his family life. But all we are seeing are the years and the moments that are relevant to the court case. And also, although it's a, a really good, really fascinating, really well acted sort of piece of drama relating to the court case, all of the stuff that relates to uh, the lawyer's personal life outside of this is just such an afterthought and it is so distracting. And I don't know, I was to some better way that that could have been incorporated, how the effects of this, co- you know, this court case over the decades had on him. Um, but it just isn't. So I think it's very good when it's following the court case. And I think it's a, quite clumsy outside of that. But yeah, as I say, it was something I didn't know about. And yeah, I'm just shocked that I didn't know about it until seeing this film.
0: Yeah. Simon, what do you, what do you think about Alistair's take on the film there?
1: Um, I thought the anathray uh, scenes were absolutely fine I thought it did give you a more of an understanding um, on a family day-to-day basis um, outside of all the legal arguments about it about it, it did affect the families it, it you know it, it was an important case um, I remembered some of it from when it when it first happened but not to the scale or the extent um, of it is I mean the big the big scene when they're the the um, that they're talking about was actually quite a revelation in the film because you don't actually realise just how pervasive all these chemicals were until that moment. It deserves histronics. Um, and, yeah, I, apart from that, everyone was saying the film is really, really good. It's, just, it's interesting. Mark Rufflo is fantastic. You can tell how much he's into it. I mean, he also produced it. Mm-hmm. Um, on the screening I had, they actually had a small, it a small clip of him talking direct to the audience before the film even started um about the problems with forever chemicals and the pollution that's still ongoing. Um so it it really
4: it's it an really important did bring story it home.
1: it's told. an important story to be told. It you know, even if you have heard of it it's it's very, very timely. Um and yeah, it's definitely worth seeing.
0: And, um, well, I'm assuming that your answer is yes there, but it, because it is such an important story and one that a lot of people like myself would not have known before going to see it, it, it has that gravitas to, to match the importance of, of what it's trying to say. I think we've got nods from everyone. Alistair? Yeah,
5: I, I, I just love that on an audio medium that all we can give you is nods. I know, <laughs> I
0: that's fine. Like that's why listen. I had to say uh, you're all nodding yeah, all because the listeners can't quite see that, but you, you are all nodding. Okay, so pretty positive there, I think. Dark Waters. It's It's currently showing at all three cinemas in Cambridge and it is a Certificate 12A. Well, that's it. We've had a packed show today, uh, and it, he's not actually in the studio. But goodbye, Rowan. Thanks for thanks for joining us for the, your last show. Tune in for our next show on the twenty first of March, which will see us cover such films as the Miss World drama Misbehaviour, horror sequel *A Quiet Place* Part Two, and much much more. We are going to uh, finish off the show with the music from *Portrait of a Lady on Fire*, that some people really hated and some people really loved from that bonfire scene. See what you make of it. Thanks very much and goodbye.
5: Bye. Bye. Bye.
0: Rowan is back in the room, so we Hello. thought for his last minute of Bums on Seat's airtime, we would talk about what our favourite Australian films are before he goes to Australia. Go.
2: Well, OK, the obvious ones, Mad Max. Everyone loves Mad Max, right? Oh, yeah.
0: yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Yeah, 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 for
2: sure. Too stressful. Some people don't like him.
0: Hmm? For
4: sure, I said, for oh, sure.
2: I thought you said too short, and I was like, well, there are four. For sure. For sure. <laughs> I'm going
4: to shout out Strictly Borum.
2: Uh, yes, very good. Enough. Muriel's Wedding. Oh yeah. Priscilla Come Queen on. of the Mule's Desert wedding Beautiful. great oh,
4: Crocodile yeah. Dundee
2: Crocodile Dundee and <laughs> I nice. think we're running out of second. seconds Oh, we've got a minute. We've okay, got a, oh, I keep going a minute. Then. Keep so, going.
4: I always bang on about it, but Animal Kingdom, David mishod 2010. Animal Kingdom. Watch yeah. it, watch it, watch it, watch it. When I
2: asked my Australian girlfriend to list her favourite Australian films, she put Animal Kingdom twice. So, that's I how think it is. top recommendation. Uh,
5: can I shout out my da- one of my dad's favourite films, which is an Australian comedy called Kenny, about <gasps> a man who cleans toilets. Yes, that, uh, double, double down on film, that one.
2: Double, double, double recommendation. And the dish
4: and the castle. <laughs> yes, talking about
3: comedies.
2: Yeah, no. Happy Feet, same director as Mad Max. <laughs> I think
3: the day before the tomorrow when the war began. Has anyone seen that? Oh, no. Yeah. That? It's yeah. a great oh, oh,
5: well, actually, Picnic dog. at Hanging Rock? <sighs>
2: Ooh, also, bleak. That was very creepy. Ooh, yeah.
5: Baby's technically an Australian film.
2: Yes, Babe, yeah. I
5: think Red oh gosh. Hill as well.
0: Red Hill. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I mean, That's that, a lot. There's a, there. a lot, lot there. we got to wrap it up. But thank you, everyone. <laughs> Go watch those films. Those are our recommendations. Thank you very much, oh. everybody. And bye-bye, Rowan. Bye, Rowan. Bye.
2: I'm sure oh, I'll be back are. one day. Yes, I hope so. Good day, mate. Good day.